Stewardship is not about how many checks one writes or how big the checks, it's about your heart. And that really is, I mean, we know that to be biblically true. For where one's treasures are, their heart is also. It's such a simple biblical verse in two places that it's almost verbatim the exact same phrase. And uh, that's really what it comes down to, is aligning heart to mission. And then when that happens in the lane of stewardship, once you know what you're trying to achieve based on your heart, then you're going to say yes to more opportunities to achieve that objective. Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, and we have a special treat for you today. We've got Steve Calper, my old friend, who is the founder of Development Services Corp. He'll get into all of that later, but I just want to welcome you, Steve, to the podcast. Jeff, thank you. Some people know me as the doing good, better guy also. Exactly. The, <laughs> the, the business is really known as doing good, better. So we'll get into all that, but Steve, thanks for being with us. And you know, where we always try to start is just giving a little context. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? That sort of thing. Well, interesting. I'm, I'm full-time in Atlanta, 25 years and counting. Uh, great community. I love being in the South. I, I've learned to you know, bring it down a notch, speak a little slower. <laughs> work, work into vocabularies like fixing and all y'all. And uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, born and raised in Southern California, my wife and I have 34 years and counting. We um, both born and raised in California, but, but our kids are all Southerners and so are we. So it's a, it's a great place to live. We love Atlanta and being here in the South. But, well, but if you know, I'm in a lot of places on a regular basis. That is true. I'm not, uh, yeah. It, it, I don't even want to know how many miles you have on airlines. But uh, people in Houston, where you are, don't even, they think I live in Houston. That's true. That's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you were actually, as you were telling that story about moving from California to the South, you did that before that was, before it was a thing. I mean, now everybody wants to leave California and move to the South. But that's a whole other uh, podcast, and no, no offense to our Southern California or our California friends and listeners. But, uh, Steve, so what, what was your family like? How many siblings did you have? What were your parents like? That's a kind of thing. Yeah, good question. I'm the youngest of three siblings, an older brother, five years older, and an older sister, seven years older. Uh, parents divorced when I was young, growing up in uh, Orange County, Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach area. And, uh, you know, just surviving yeah. as, as a young guy, uh, making sure that bills could be paid at the end of the month. And my brother and I lived with my mom and he was five years older. So really through my high school years, I was almost like an only child. It was just my mom and I, and, and my sister had moved and lived with my dad after my parents separated and divorced. So, you know, we, I was in survival mode. Uh, yeah. first house that I remember living in was a house that my wife and I purchased after we were married. So anyway, wow. it's been, a, it was a, it was a, a good road. Well, I know that uh, I know family's super important to you, and yeah. we can get into maybe a little bit of that of your own family now uh, yeah. uh, down the road. But but you go off, do you go right off to college? I know you had some adventures, kind of maybe uh, <laughs> along the way, maybe some modeling in there somewhere. I mean, what what was that like? Was, was that part of college? Where did uh, give, give us a little timeline here? Well, I didn't know you were going to bring up those memories in the in the caliper. I mean, they look at you, they know. Okay. They look at your wife, they definitely know. So, okay. So, just go ahead. We got to go there just well, for a minute. you know, it, um, it, it's my faith story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, 
you know, my um, when I coming out of high school, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I felt called to wanting to have an education. I was studying Eastern philosophy and New Age, and that's just kind of where I was at. But I really wasn't. I didn't have any. You know, my heels weren't dug in anywhere in particular. And uh, part of my faith story and journey is that uh, one, it it kind of elevated me out of what I would consider growing up in a impoverished childhood. I didn't I didn't know that I was growing up that way until I started to be exposed to some other things. But it gave me a lane to one travel, see the world, get to know a whole consortium of different experiences and people. But it also helped me see that there were some things I could do in my own life financially that I wasn't expecting. But but my uh, but my faith journey came out of me being in the modeling industry, I was challenged uh, over a, a game of chess and a cigar and a beer in Portugal uh, to read the New Testament from a perspective of worldview. And uh, I did. And that was in um, March of 89. And then April, I really thought about it and prayed about it. And in May of 89, Shannon, who we were dating at the time, we accepted the Lord together. And we were engaged in June and baptized in July and married in August. So me becoming a Christian in, in the year of 89, was, was that was a big, big deal, and it was a lot of fun, and it really launched uh, the whole next season of my life and my entire life moving forward. I, just, I love that story. I mean, boy, there's a whole podcast about that <laughs> that era. Uh, I'm thinking, I, I hate to blow past it, uh, but... Well, she was, in, she was in Southern California, and I was in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, and we sent each other a fax saying we need to talk. You know, for for that younger generation on the yeah, <laughs> yeah. With paper, it was old fashioned text with paper. <laughs> you know, it's kind of you know you had to think harder about what you wrote. You know, when it's longhand, you know what I mean. People were not <laughs> we were not typing notes to girlfriends. You know what I mean. I mean, you had to handwrite it. You know, and sometimes you go, oh, scratch that out, start over. <laughs> you know, uh, I love that though. So now, did, now, were you doing that? Did you do that before you went to college? Was that like part time while you were going to college? Part time? How did all that work in? Because you, yeah, it was all integrated. So okay. I was, I was doing some modeling work, going to school, junior college, and then when my wife and I got married in '89, that was really when I became a full time student working. Okay. I uh, got into financial services, Smith Barney, got my license. I was working at a church in Southern California. It was a con- big conglomerate, but the goal was go to college and graduate. First in my family to go to college and graduate, which was awesome, but that became the focus. And so we spent about four years kind of navigating all that, three and a half years. And we ended up graduating from UC Irvine together in uh, in, in 93. And so that was pretty cool. Mr. and Mrs. Steve Caliper and Baby, our 29-year-old, we were pregnant with our our son, Jake, when we graduated together from UC Irvine. I mean, that's uh, in still together that's awesome i mean do the math for me how many years totally married now 34 years in Kevin. 34 solid yeah. solid so and you have how many kids four um two sons 29 and 26 two daughters 24 and 22. that's nice one of the advantages of course of, of starting a family so early is then you get some fun on the back end when uh, when the knees don't hurt so much you know so exactly we're, oh. we're loving being empty nesters and doing life with our four adult age kids and their datings there's some significant interest in lane and in scope and i think that's pretty exciting so we're in the next season of our of our family and our life and and really on that note jeff we um about five years ago so i'm 55 so about five years ago we kind of sat back and said what is uh, and really cu- kind of curating a lot of thought and conversations from folks. But for me, what hit was the kind of the three lanes where I think a lot of business owners are thinking about today, or a lot of people are thinking about today, or just Christian 
leaders are thinking about today, which is what is life like as an empty nester and how does how how do we live life with our adult age kids and then their significant others and then we're we're not blessed yet, but as my wife would say, Shannon would say, we haven't yet the most important people in our life outside of our kids and their their spouses, which is all of our grandchildren. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then and then the lane of our vocation. How do we serve those that work for us? And then how do we make a difference and serve and make make our faith known to clients or or people that we're serving in the marketplace? And then the third lane, which is um, a lot about what you and I have talked about over the years, is what do we do with wealth, assets, capital, stewardship, and how how does that curate and lead into the other two lanes? I think that Christian business leaders and owners of uh, and heads of families are, are thinking about those three lanes today. Well, I think that's a that's a good intro to. Uh, I was gonna I meant to do it at the top uh, of the intro. Is is this this interview is basically a twofer because you've had your own business for essentially 25 years so you are a business owner yeah uh, so you think about the way just like you said the way you treat your employees and how you're generous uh, with your own income and use that platform but then sort of your uh, you spend a lot of time with generous business owners helping uh, other nonprofits with development all that so maybe just let's just back up and take take us through that early career okay you get out of UC Irvine you're doing some stuff at a church. You're doing some stuff uh, at some Wall Street firms. So clearly, you kind of are drawn to the Bible and money uh, thing. How does that sort of work its way out to creating this this new business? Well, I was actually in financial services as as Jeff I shared Smith Barney Merrill Lynch, and just trying to figure out that lane. I could admittedly say that I liked it. It was a space that I felt a level of success, but I wasn't waking up every day saying, "Man, this is what jacked me up." I wasn't. Right. Wasn't really excited about, you know, what does that day look like? Um, the Family Research Council had spun off from Focus on the Family. And uh, Phil Olson, who's a longtime friend, he knew he knew me from running around the church and knew my extended family that I had married into. And he approached me with looking at the Family Research Council as a way for me to put my skills and passions and talents forward. And, and so Phil encouraged me to pray about, and I joined the Family Research Council team doing donor relations. I didn't even know what development was. And uh, my territory was the Northeast. And then I um, covered um, the, the Eastern half of the country, which is literally what led me to open up the lane of moving to Atlanta. I had the Eastern half of the country and international line going in and out of Southern California. It was uh, a great deal. But, but actually, I, I, I sent a text. Remember the old Blackberries? I sent a BlackBerry text to Bill Olson and Gary Bauer at the time, and I said, hey, I've got some good news and some better news. And they text back and said, uh, well, what's the good news? What's the better news? And I said, well, let's jump on a call. And I said, well, the good news is, is that there's a lot of potential donors and people to know here in Atlanta and all through the Southeast. And they said, well, what's the better news? And I said, well, I bought a house this weekend. And I'm moving to Atlanta. Wow. <laughs> and so really, that's, I set up shop here in Atlanta 25 years ago. And and stayed with FRC. So the, in the lineage of career, joined a direct mail agency about three and a half years after moving to Atlanta. And in that space, it was a direct mail fundraising organization company. And uh, I was blessed because I had a strike price on what we did as a as a team and a company. And it was a privately held company. And my client, which was a perfect fit for me at the time, was the Salvation Army. And and the agency grew, and um, and then of course what you and I have both experienced over the years, which is our our time with 
dear friend and mentor, we were, um, I was in the master's program and my life mission statement 17 years ago, uh, launched as to assist and serve a thousand organizations and families to realize a billion dollars for the kingdom. And when my 365 was up, um, as far as my agreement, I tapped out and put my efforts to full court life mission. Okay. So, uh, in case anybody hasn't clued in, Steve, his brain works very quickly. So for for the slower uh, Jeff Thomas and uh, maybe a few of those, all right. So let let me let me back up and just uh, clean it up in my brain. So you've got focus on the family that kind of spins off some of their development work. Is that fair to say, or like the the focus on the family? They spun off the Family Research Council, which became the Judeo Christian conservative think tank doer and okay so it was a think tank it wasn't necessarily development activities or whatever oh. it was just kind of an entity that got spun off and then you would kind of help with development for the think tank right That's correct okay yeah. and then you moved to atlanta you're still doing that correct but you get this job with this direct mail fundraising company right so you're kind of doing both is that true no i just completely transitioned okay so you're out of frc you're into the direct mail thing you and at that place you have this big client Salvation Army. Is that right? That is correct. Helping them with direct mail. But but what I found was, as you can imagine, Jeff, that I was the direct mail vendor, had a tremendous amount of success. I was very yeah. blessed of working with the officers. But in a lot of cases, what I was finding with the officers was that I was helping lead an advisory board meeting. We were having development luncheons. The many, the many officers would say, hey, while you're in town, I want to go meet with this foundation. Can you come with me? It was all the stuff that, as a direct mail vendor, I didn't need to do, but they they valued that I had an enthusiasm. Clearly, you had that skill to do that. So you sort of identify. Sounds like you enjoyed that, maybe a little Absolutely. more than just the, you know, the transactional. You know, anybody can kind of do that. Anybody that knows you, uh, you, you know, you like being in front of people and communicating. And then the master's program. It sounds like what came out of that again. Uh, that's uh, I've done that also. They kind of help you come up with sort of your one-line personal mission statement. And and it wasn't sending a billion pieces of direct mail to people. It's uh, a right. thousand, a much smaller number, helping those people uh, give away a billion dollars. So it sounds like, okay, you found, if you found the right space with leverage in it to help givers do good, better, as, as yeah. you would say. Uh, and, and so, but you start that 25 years ago. I mean, that's pretty early to step out and, and start this thing. Who were the first clients or how did that go from the beginning? How scary was that? Yeah, well, um, I started kind of doing what I'm doing right out of the gate about 17 years ago, uh, which, which was phenomenal. I, d- I, don't, I don't share this story often, but I will. It's, it'll be brief. It'll be about 120 seconds, so just a couple of minutes. When I left the office on day 365 and I was tapping out, my phone rang. And it was an international organization that was looking to curate and build strategy for their U.S. fundraising development efforts, as well as some of their global offices. And um, he said, you know, we met for lunch a couple weeks ago. Can we get together? And I said, certainly, I'd love to. It would be a name that you would definitely know. And then 20 minutes later, I received a phone call from the Salvation Army officer in San Antonio. And he said, Steve, I just called the office. What are you doing? And I told him, and he said, come to San Antonio. And then 20 minutes later, officer in Winston-Salem called and said, hey, I just spoke with so-and-so in San Antonio, and when can you come to Winston-Salem? And I walked in the door, and I shared that with 
Shannon, and we were living on a horse property just north of Atlanta. And her response was, when a man is doing what he's called to do, God wants you to succeed, so go get him. Yeah, I mean, how generous is that of God to just give you those? Because sometimes you can struggle for a while, right? What what a confirmation, sort of day one, right? Yeah, yeah. But in in an hour and 30 minutes, I had three people that said, when can you meet? When can you come? And I, I felt like I was doing exactly what God had wired me to do. And that's really what the beauty of the master's program is, just for a quick shout out, Jim, because yeah, you know it. Exactly. It's finding that, finding that missional statement that becomes who we are. As my dear friend and in um, yours too, Bob Shank would say, doing what we're made for, not what we're paid for. And that, that's truly living out our calling. Exactly. So you sort of found this intersection of communication, fundraising, the kingdom, the things that you're good at. And you've been running at this. So, what does that model look like? Why, why, why is that a niche? What you know what I mean? Where, yeah. Connect the points for us because not everybody knows that. Maybe they're funders. Remember, we're dealing with business owners mostly listening to this. Yeah, yeah. And they're thinking, okay, well, I've got my favorite charities to give to. So I know those development people. Where does where does Steve's organization fit into that? Yeah, good question. So my missional statement, as I mentioned, fits on. There's three lanes to it. One, one lane is I partner and assist and serve ministries and nonprofits across the country and around the world, which is, which is a blessing. I, I, I like that space a lot. I serve, I've served to date 950 plus organizations, not as an outsource, but an insource. So I've become a virtual element of being able to speak into strategy, communications, and really creating environments because that's where I believe that the secret sauce is. I believe that people are hungry to be in community. But we, as I call it, the organization has the responsibility to be able to communicate clearly on who we are, what we do, and why. When I say we, not me, but the organization that I'm serving or partnering with. Another lane to, to the far side would be what I call my, um, my do-gooder bucket, where I have my own giving fund initiatives and things that I get excited about. I wrote a book a few years ago um, that's given me a unique platform to be invited to can be a part of efforts. And then I have my, what I call as my causes, initiatives or theme-based opportunities to bring people together so they can hear and learn about kingdom opportunities. And uh, that's been, been pretty exciting. I've been running with Doug Cobb and part of the finishing fund for several years now. In fact, October of 17 was when he called me and we spoke on the phone. And, and um, that's a great commission energy and effort that I've put a lot of time into. And I love running with Doug and others. And then the middle lane, which is to collaborate and to visit with either couples or individuals or families on helping them think through their strategy of stewardship and giving. And um, I, I just do that because of a passion point. And, if, and, and I don't have any economic or business model in that lane. I serve because I desire to see people figure out and be succinct and clear on what they're trying to accomplish. Just like a business plan or a personal life or a family plan, if you have a stewardship plan, you do more. You say yes to things that help you achieve your goal. And, and so those are the three lanes. So I think this is, uh, and this is, I think, where we can get into this kind of uh, double benefit of this uh, podcast, I think. As a business owner, uh, the way you think about your own sort of uh, using your platform, obviously, the service you deliver in that business is a ministry, frankly. That's correct. But beyond that, maybe let's get into this for a second. So you talked about it. You're going to, you know, figure out the things that you want to serve. But how do you think 
about your business platform beyond just the product you serve. Yeah. Like in the things that you do, I know you've been intentional about that. How do you think about using that platform? Uh, maybe just within your family, with the employees, the things you fund. How do you think through that? I know you gave us a little bit of that, but maybe unpack that just a little bit more. Yeah. Well, we, my wife and I, we went away a number of years ago and kind of curated what our interests are. Yeah. And to me, we we kind of stepped away from that time, and it, it's mod, it's mirrored a little bit of a change, but but it's pretty succinct that it's still the same. The Great Commission and the Gospel. Now that's unengaged people groups and equipping and empowering leaders globally. And then a few years ago, we really shifted to what is it that we're doing here in America to approach or, you know, as a vernacular, uh, Jeff, that you know from an organization that you know I'm running with, to contend for the next generation. And then to me, the largest unreached people group in the world is God's children. Kids that live in orphan care, foster care, and the yet to be born. So I'm a pro-life guy. And then I also collaborate and partner with organizations that are in the orphan care space. And then to me, it's at-risk women and kids. Uh, it's just a, 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 from my childhood, I could relate to that experience. You know, um, being a, a kid that grew up in, an, a, in a rough family, battered a little bit, you know, surviving with a, uh, with a mom that drove a Pinto. And, um, you know, and, and so understanding what moms with young kids go through today, that's become something that's, that's important too. Now, the organizations that I serve, consequently, mirror that. Yeah. It's you're gonna be drawn, they're going to be drawn to you, and you're going to be drawn to them, right? That's, that's a great right. point. So to me, I, I, you know, I do. I, I partner with ministries or nonprofits that need help with creating and designing a fundraising program that I can live out. But I want to make sure that I, I own their mission, that I appreciate their mission, that I'd be willing to give my talent and time that I want to make sure that I can support financially as well. Because if I'm not doing those three things, then how do I get in front of that group or how do I ask others to come and be in the room if I'm not doing that also? So I think you just hit on something that um, we've definitely seen as a common thread through these. We've done about 80 of these interviews or so. And uh, people sometimes struggle. Uh, we get the question sort of, where do I start a lot? And one of the things we always say is, you know, what is God taking you through? So your expression of how you grew up, you know, the things that you've seen, one way I try to say it is, you know, what breaks your heart, right? But often it's something that God's taking you through uniquely in your family, your personal experience, a health situation, whatever it is, uh, the way you came to Christ, you know, whatever that is, think about those things. And maybe that is a place to start. Would you say that's something that you try to encourage the, the givers you deal with to think about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say that um, stewardship is not about how many checks one writes or how big the checks, it's about your heart. And that really is, I mean, we know that to be biblically true. For where one's treasures are, their heart is also. It's such a simple biblical verse in two places that it's almost verbatim the exact same phrase. And uh, that's really what it comes down to, is aligning heart to mission. And then when that happens in the lane of stewardship, once you know what you're trying to achieve based on your heart, then you're going to say yes to more opportunities to achieve that objective. And uh, I think that, that that's pretty cool. In fact, um, what uh, on, and on that, um, life experiences do play out. And yes. I, we give, I could give probably 50 illustrations of a couple that I met with last week. They flew down from Raleigh. We spent a couple hours together on Thursday morning couple that I've spent some time with in Birmingham, a couple of couples in California. 
But but one in particular comes to mind. It was a, a gentleman that heard me speak at a philanthropy workshop over a, a long lunch. And he approached me with, hey, my wife wasn't here, but what would it look like for us to connect together with her? And I said, buy me an airline ticket and uh, I'll come see you, pick me up at the airport and we'll spend a half a day together. Well, we, we were getting to know each other and we started to do what I call the whiteboard session. It's not about how much, but it's about where and why. Make a list of the organizations and really looking under the hood to why are you supporting that organization? What is it about that organization that gets you excited or jacked up? Well, we, we were about an hour and a half into the conversation and all of a sudden the wife says, which was in a complete lineup line for me, which is she says to me, looking at me, not her husband, but looking at me and says, I want to support the unborn baby. They were, she was in her late forties. He was in his late fifties, first time marriage for both of them. And I got her to unpack that a little bit. What she put on the table was when she was a teenager, she had a, a, an unregrettable decision that he never knew. But, wow. but Jeff, this was the magical thing when you unpack yeah. art and you connect. What transpired in the next couple of hours was she looked at him and she said, well, first she looked at me and she said, I want to give away a million dollars to protect the unborn baby. And then she looked at her husband and said, do we have a million dollars? <laughs> right. And as you know, working with affluent, very blessed couples, he was now crying and looking at her saying, we have many times that. I was about to say, I figured it out. Yeah. So right, they, they get this heart connection and now they're like, now we're getting on the same page with what we can achieve. Now they work towards a game plan. For over the next five years, they're going to give away X numbers of millions of dollars over the next five years, defining now what it is and what does it mean to protect the unborn baby. And there's a lot of different areas, but 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 first one has to connect and, the, and get their heart jacked up and open so that you can figure out, you know, how is the world different because of the blessings that, that you've received? Okay, this is so fun. Man, what a story. We could spend the next <laughs> oof, day telling those. Uh, we we, we, we got to get at least another one of those. But but I think maybe you frame, I think you have this unique perspective. You know, we both deal with a lot of nonprofit leaders. And I think sometimes they're so focused, and rightfully so, on the mission yeah. that they kind of view, not everybody, <laughs> but the fundraising is a bit of a necessary evil. When I know that you and I and most of the great fundraising people out there realize that they're really invite. It's actually a big part of the ministry to invite other people to participate and they get to be part of that. Can you yeah. describe that tension uh, or, or walking that line or doing that with people? How do you think about that issue? Yeah, well, good, um, good question. And I do feel that most nonprofits don't know how to do good donor relations. Not, they're, they're without a doubt, there are many. The hearts are great, but it's a different skill. Yeah, and, and I would frame it this way, that there's a difference between being, now here's a secret sauce to my next book that's coming out, yeah. is there's a difference between being friendly and being relational. Mm. In the donor relations lane, in the nonprofit space, there's a lot of development people out there that are friendly. They're nice people. You're, you're with them and they're, they're nice people. I'm a relationship person. And now I've, I've shared this a lot with people as I've facilitated and led a lot of events and gatherings and discussions. God wasn't friendly with me. He was relational with me. Good. God didn't say, oh, Steve's a nice guy. He pursued me. And so to me, the relationship piece 
is God pursued me to build relationship and be in relationship. So for me, the development space is all about what am I doing to get to know the hearts of people so that when an environment's created or a connection point that I know enough about them that I can hear their hearts, hear their interest and align what it is that they're excited about back to the heart piece, which is equaling to stewardship and pursuing them to get to know them. I don't want to just know what people, I want to get to know people. And there's a difference. Uh, that's that, that's well said. And then people whole, want to be known. Yeah. And, and maybe I think that story you told about the husband and wife and she, unco- you know, releasing this, this verbalizing this passion that she has because <laughs> of the experience. And then think about how invested they are. So do you have another story or something about mm-hmm. finding donors who are, you know, it's not like you're twisting their arm. I think some people think development people twist somebody's arm to do something. How do you think about like offering an opportunity and just witnessing how people uh, that are the donors feel like they're participants in what's going on, even though maybe their day-to-day job obviously is not working in that ministry. What's another illustration of that? Yeah, good, good question. So I was working, well, there's been a number of times where I've yeah, worked with an entire family where mm-hmm. there's matriarch, patriarch, and an adult age kids. They're all working professional. Now, that's a little bit trickier because sometimes the family might be so blessed that they're giving away in their stewardship and their annual giving more than maybe one of the couples in the family is making. Right. So that becomes pretty tricky. But, but one illustration in particular was matriarch and patriarch, adult age kids, they're adult. One of the uh, adult, well, the son-in-law. Yeah. I'm going to put it that way. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of sitting with his arms back and he's not fully engaged, but he's kind of a part of the conversation. So I just paused because you can't continue when someone's kind of shutting down. So I just paused and, and dove in and I said, tell us what's going on. And he said, well, and, and we finally got to the, to the meat of it, which is I feel uncomfortable giving away my in-laws money. My statement. Yeah, he was a very successful surgeon and he was doing right. well, enough, but he just felt uncomfortable being in the conversation. So we put the tactics and the game plan aside. We just had a family conversation. Well, at the end of the day, we did have a game plan. We came up with a giving statement and we had a game plan. When everyone left, the, the, the matriarch, all she did was give me a hug and say, thank you, because I wanted the hearts of my family. Right. She, she didn't care about the money. She just wanted the hearts of the family. Uh, to be connected. And and I feel that a lot of matriarchs and patriarchs, that's what they want. They want the heart of the family. And that and that, and that is a little bit tricky sometimes. And in the tactics, there's been uh, folks that I've suggested to make it known what inheritances are. Yeah. It's not in my, my role is not to say how much, but let it be known. And then that way you can journey comfortably with your adult age kids or grandkids as matriarchs and patriarchs to say, hey, grandma and grandpa, we're on mission. Or mom and dad, we're on mission. We want you to be on mission with us. And uh, by the way, we're going to put a life expectancy on our lives to be 90 or 95, and we're going to die broke. We want you to be a part of it. And it's just yeah. make it fun. Clear communication, yeah. opening up the doors of communication makes yeah. family stronger. That's a side effect. Yeah. And, uh, and these, you know, as you were talking about that, one thing that it really popped into my brain is not only are you getting these families together that struggle to kind of do that without a facilitator. It's a little weird. You know, the power dynamics can be a little odd and maybe those conversations don't happen if you don't have facilitator in the room. But the other thing you've talked about is you talking a lot about relationship Mm -hmm. and community also beyond the family. 
Do you have a story or how do you think about getting families that share a passion together? Because a lot of times I, we notice that with this, even this podcast or with our, our clients at Arcos, our family office clients, where they, they tend to be a little isolated. You know, they're the biggest giver in their church or whatever else. How do you think, have you seen the benefits of getting these people together? Yeah. Yeah. Another illustration um, across the country, way to the left side, couple that I worked with, they brought their adult kids into the conversation and they had a significant amount more capital that they could give on an annual basis, but they didn't want to be the drivers of it. So the art of the conversation was getting their kids excited about who are now all adults. Yeah. Thinking about and married. They were, the goal was my, my role was to facilitate a discussion to create clarity to the giving statement and the plan that the family was wanting to put forth. And we, we got to a point where one of the uh, adult kids said, Hey, mom, dad, now that we know that what we're trying to accomplish, could we do more? Uh-huh. Because mom and dad didn't want to lead with that. But one of the adult sons literally leaned in and said, man, we've been so blessed. Could we do more? And then that's, and that's when the matriarch and patriarch were able to share that there were some significant events that had taken place to allow them to do that. And they essentially went from about 750 to over a couple of million dollars annually because the kids were driving that. Now, in, inversely to that, there's a, a couple that was at their, their lake house and we were visiting and they have five adult age kids, a couple married, a couple were not. And the mom was asking about, you know, when can we bring our kids into the conversation? And so without saying yes or no, or let's do it, my question to her was, when your kids were little or running around the house and you were preparing dinner, did you have a set menu and did you go around to all your kids and say, dinner's ready, come sit at the table? And then you served the meal and then you had a meal with them and you conversed with them? Or did you go around to each of their rooms when they were doing their homework and say, what do you want for dinner? What do you want for dinner? What do you want for dinner? And then you get seven different options for dinner. And so the illustration was, prepare the meal, invite the kids to the table, journey with them, have meals, share with them how you've prepared the meal and how you're, how you're leading. And then when they're ready, then let them start to speak into the menu. And then in some cases, when they're ready, start to prepare the meal. As, yeah. a, as an illustration that moms, when they're thinking about, yeah, I want my kids to sit at the table. I'm, a, I'm an encourager that husbands and wives should clearly be on the same page before they invite their kids to the table, especially if they have kids that are not if matriarch and patriarch or, or moms and dads are Christians and that their faith is the center of their stewardship, if they've got adult kids that are not, that gets a little trickier. And, and I've, I've been in that, in that conversation too. And, and don't you find sometimes that, I love that, have, your, have clarity of your own generation's game plan. But one of, the, one of the things we talk about a lot with these families is empower, don't control. So look, we're the stewards of this. Here's what we're doing, letting you know what we're up to. But then empowering the next generation to find their thing. Usually the values do translate mostly, but maybe they're expressed through different nonprofits or that kind of thing. So do you see that happen sometimes where, you know, have you seen some, some, some of that, those stories where empowerment happens? Absolutely. And those stories actually are a part of uh, life transformation, transformation for the family. So we think of transformation of what the ministries do. Uh, around the world or across the country or in our cities. But stewardship and transformation takes place in the lives of those contributing because our lives are changed because we get to be a part of. And then the community aspect. You know, I believe we're all one relationship removed through Christ as Christians. And I believe that there's a hunger for Christians to be in community and to be open and transparent. We don't have to 
expose, hey, this is how much I'm giving, but there's an element of community that's so and so so important. Yeah, we're I know that we have that in common, trying to help get people together more and just let iron sharpen iron, things you can't program. We we had an event last week where we had seven families together, didn't really know each other. And by the end of it, it's just dinner. And we did just a little bit of a Q&A about this uh, podcast with one of our advisors. And by the end of the two, couple, two couples that had never met were making a dinner date because they were kind of, okay, we have things in common, you know, that we should talk about. So that's just so fun that you can't script what God will do through those relationships, but just yeah, be able- and, and, and generations approach life and doing things together differently. I, I find that there's boomers and grandkids, call it the 20s, early 30-year-olds, that have this symbiotic relationship. And then, Jeff, where you and I are right in the middle, kind of the Gen Xers, where, you know, there's a disconnect sometimes. And, and frankly, there's a lot of heads of families that don't know how to connect with their adult age kids. It's hard. And, and so sometimes we just have to create some environments to help them navigate some of that. And it doesn't have to always be the business of, uh, but, uh, but certainly being able to build some, uh, you know, um, likability and to connect um, with adult, I mean, with dads and adult age kids. Okay. I got to ask you this one other question, because this is a little bit of an obsession with mine and of, of mine. And uh, so we were talking about a little bit of the disconnect sometimes with the nonprofit leader who's so mission driven. Awesome but mission-driven and doesn't quite know how to deal with the donor. Yeah. Now, there's this other thing that I think you probably also uniquely understand, which is uh, that, that we sort of live in all the time where the world is kind of telling these families, and, and I'll blame uh, my industry, uh, Wall Street, uh, largely, and even some of the accountants, estate planning attorneys, this sort of thing. I've witnessed uh, where I wasn't really in charge years ago, a family doing a new estate plan had a lot of generosity in it. They took it to their old advisors and they literally stared at him and said, why would anyone give away that much money? I'll never forget this as long as I live. So I think the world is telling people, listen, buy the fifth house, the 14th car, pile it up. And, and I think God plants these seeds of generosity in these families. And I always say they just have to be watered and encouraged, uh, how do you see that happening in families with a little bit of encouragement? You know, kind of what the world says versus kind of living an open hand. How, how do you see that tension? Yeah, that that that's a it's a big question, and it's a very difficult one to answer straight up because every family is unique. Yeah, some families might say what we're wanting to do is to create generational wealth, which is not uncommon. Yes, to me, the bigger challenge is discipleship. Because yeah. what, what are you doing to help disciple your family so that they could be prepared? In fact, there's a, a, a leading wealth management firm, much not like yours, Jeff, where you know the transfer of wealth conversation comes into play. To me, it's not about a transfer of wealth. It's a discipleship. And that's really exactly. what it comes down to. It's making sure that your kids are prepared as adults or grandkids prepared for the conversation. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a, a decision to say, you know, how much do we want to give our kids. And um, often I find that people are giving their kids way more than they're prepared for. Yeah. And, and I think you get into it, which is, you know, the three questions was, it's like, how much is enough for you? Sort of, th- I mean, that that's a pretty big question just because nobody's ever said there's a yeah. finish line. Yeah. So the concept of a finish line to begin with, and then how much is enough for the kids? Are they prepared? And then what are we going to do with the rest? I mean, arguably four questions there, but you could sort of lump the two 
kid questions into one, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, just get it. And it's not a one size fits all, but just to ask God those questions. And to your point, maybe he's telling you to give more money than your neighbor to your kids and grandkids. It's not about the dollars. It's about the discipleship, I think. Yeah. And then kind of two sides of the coin and there are three sides, but the one side of the coin I get with organizations is when is the right time to make an ask? Right. And I say, when you've earned the right. Mm, that's good. And then with a family, it's, well, how much should we leave our kids and grandkids? Will you leave them as much as they're prepared to receive? Exactly. If, and they're very important questions to discern. And that's awesome. Well, that's a great place, I think, to leave it for today. <laughs> Obviously, we can do much more, and perhaps we will. Uh, but uh, I just, uh, we, you know, we always try to leave people with a practical tip. So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, some 40-year-old entrepreneur out there. The business is going pretty well, but this person, he or she, is kind of thinking about, man, I'd like to kind of use this platform for more generosity. Guys working on me. I'm not sure where to start. What's just a practical tip you could leave that business owner on, on where they could get started? Well, that, that is a great question. I would say when it comes to stewardship, um, across the board, whether it be a young business owner or somebody that's thinking about stewardship, is to don't think about it. Um, you know, God didn't say, someday when I bless you, great. Right. What, what did I bless you with today? And to be a good steward and bless others because of what you've been blessed with. And to me, I'm not a percentage guy. Yeah. And so give based on how you feel called and led. Um, at the end of the day, there's some tactics, certainly pay less in taxes, give more. That's just, um, uh, that's a worldly approach. And I think we desire that, but, but, but don't, don't hold back. Um, you know, be, be bold and courageous. You can't outgive God, of course, as we know, but don't wait for blessings. Be blessed and engage. And well, uh, don't we'll, wait, we'll, just get started and yeah. then let it grow from there. And I think you've left some great practical tips along the, the way <laughs> the whole time. So thank you, Steve, for being with us on this week's thank Generous Business yeah. Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. And thanks for listening. And uh, uh, go to our brand new website, generousbusinessowner.com and sign up for our newsletter and uh, share it with your friends and family. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.